When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to a new episode of the Sports Mecca podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Abramo. As always, I'm joined by my co-host, Sam Hengeli. Today, we are joined by a retired sports broadcaster for many years and a current author, Steve Fiziak. Steve, Sam and I appreciate the time for you coming on the podcast for a second time. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. It's always fun to talk about the past, and I spent 47 years in the sports broadcasting industry, but that goes back to a small town of Hastings, Nebraska, doing high school games, and then, of course, most recently, doing the team that I grew up loving, the Kansas City Royals, and so it was a real blessing. And at the age of 68, I finally retired. Now I'm 69 years old, and it's like my wife and I are we're walking home to God together. Yeah, absolutely. So for, you know, we know that you retired, but for the listeners, when they get to listen to this episode, just to provide some context, you did retire. You announced November of 2022. And like you mentioned, you had spent over well over a decade and a half covering the Kansas City Royals in Kansas City, but you've actually moved to Colorado. You briefly talked about it before we started recording, but you know, for the listeners, update us on you know, how retirement life has been for you and really what it's been like just to be in a new city. I think the whole key to retirement is to have a great partner. And I have had a great partner for 38 years and my wife, Stacy. And I just found out the last couple of years that I was broadcasting Royals games or, or really broadcasting any games, but I found myself missing her more and more. And I said to myself, do I really want to die in a press box? And the answer was no. I wanted to get on with a new chapter in my life. And uh, my wife and I have always loved the Rocky Mountains. And I thought it was time. As a matter of fact, my final season in 22, my daughter, who lives in Michigan, drove down with one of my granddaughters, the middle one, to see me do a Chicago White Sox game. And the three of us had such a great time, and my granddaughter was sitting in my lap while I'm broadcasting a Royals-White Sox game, that when the series ended and I said goodbye to my daughter and granddaughter, I thought, you know what? I want more of that and less of this, because I've been doing this for 47 years. So when you retire, you have an opportunity to spend more time with your loved ones, your wife, your daughter, your son, your granddaughters, and I have three granddaughters, and now I can see them whenever I want. 
as soon as that series was over, I went back and I talked to my boss and I said, hey, I love the Kansas City Royals. I love my career, but I just want you to know this will be my last year. Or if you want to cut me way back next year, maybe I could do a few games. But quite frankly, I want to move on with a new chapter in my life. And that's why um, I decided to retire after the 22 season. Yeah, because I know when people decide to retire and move on to maybe a different chapter of their life, it's either unexpected or maybe they do it on their own terms and they're happy with it. Do you feel now that you're you know a year and a half removed, do you feel like you know it was the right decision for you? Absolutely. As a matter of fact, I don't know how many times my wife and I talk about that because we moved to Evergreen, Colorado. And if you've ever been here, it is absolutely gorgeous. But it, it's, it's really been different. But um, I do believe that I made the decision for the best reasons. And, uh, and, and this has been a, and a totally new adventure. In our backyard, we have Dedee's Park. We have the Evergreen Lake. And it's spectacular. And I love walking in the woods with my dog in the snow, seeing elk, seeing deer. It's totally different, but I still have a passion. And as you um, uh, articulated at the beginning of this interview, I'm an author. I've written four novels. So I'm just about finished with my fifth. And that's my new passion. But I can do it at home. I don't have to leave. I don't miss being in an airport. I don't miss being in an airplane. I, I really, if I miss anything, I really don't miss the games. I miss my friends. I miss Ryan Lefevre and Rex Hudler and Joel Goldberg and Jeff Montgomery and Eric Guthrie and Denny Matthews and Steve Stewart and all the guys I worked with. We were a team. We traveled together. We had dinners together. And those are the guys that I miss the most. But like I said, this is just a, a new chapter for Steve and Stacy. Yeah, absolutely. Again, before we recorded, you said you watch, you know, you'll watch the Royals, you'll watch flashes of of baseball, but not maybe as intently as you did when you were covering the team. From what you've watched, your thoughts on this recent 2022 season and how it I guess feels watching these watching the sport like baseball that you cover for so many years, like not as a, a broadcaster anymore, more as like a fan. It's interesting because if you ask my wife, she'll say he doesn't watch that many games. As a matter of fact, last night I did click in and I watched the K-State game. I'm an alum of the Kansas State Wildcats, and I watched their exciting overtime victory over Baylor, and then I switched over and watched KU because I'm a fan of the Jayhawks and Bill Self. So I did catch a little bit of that. But if you ask my wife, I really have not been as involved as smitten as addicted to sports as I once was in my 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s, where I couldn't wait to get to the next event. And now, quite frankly, I can't wait to uh, get to my office and write another chapter for the book I'm writing now about the last year of the war, World War II in Italy. I think when you came on our podcast back in 2021, you told us about your third or fourth book, you're on your fifth book, right? You're writing that? Yes. The first two books I ever wrote, and I began that in 2006, were about two families trying to produce a great Sangiovese wine in Italy's dark days of World War I, the rise of fascism, and Benito Mussolini. It was a love story slash historical fiction. And then Above the Walls, which was the sequel, picked up 
1938, after Benito Mussolini writes his manifesto of race, solidifying his union with Nazi Germany. And then the third and fourth books that I wrote, a book and a sequel, yes, they it is about baseball. And it's a book called Walks with the Wind. And um, I was very blessed to have it be named the uh, grand prize winner of the Writer's Digest contest in 2021. And it's about a Native American young man who is an incredible pitcher, but also a wildlife tracker. And why did I choose those two professions? Because I've always admired the athletes who have success when they're alone. And if you think about a baseball player, he's on the mound, he's alone, he's in trouble. Only he can get out of this mess. And all eyes are on him on that mound. And people are yelling at him from the stands and from the dugout. And guys are taking lead. And the great ones that I've watched, guys like Greg Maddox, have the ability to narrow their focus and execute their pitch and throw it exactly where they want to with great movement and location and uh, unhittability. And the other profession that I thought where you succeed when you're alone was a wildlife tracker. A tracker actually, talking to several of them, they said when they're alone, when there are no humans around, they can really focus and get in on the, the five senses and the sixth, which is intuition. But it's sights, smells, sounds. And this young man has that skill Unfortunately, he has such success when he's alone that he has difficulty with some of his teammates. And one of the beauties that I, I really found out when I covered the Kansas City Royals in 2014 and 2015 was the unity on that team. I mean, these were guys, and I traveled with them, and I, and I, I talked to them every single day, but they had a, a tremendous love for each other. Alex Gordon loved Lorenzo Cain. Lorenzo Cain loved Mike Moustakis. Mike Moustakis loved Alcides Escobar. Escobar loved Hosmer. Hosmer loved Perez. And they all came together. And there was a, a unity involved and an energy uh, that obviously that you couldn't see. But in those two years, 2014 and 2015, that team finished last in home runs and last in walks and went to back-to-back -back World Series and won one. That's never been done before. And the only way you do that is through unity, is leaving your ego in the locker room and coming together as a team. And, and I just loved watching that group of young men come together and win a world championship like they did in 2015. And that's what has always inspired me about covering team sports. And that's what inspired me to write this book about a young man who was incredibly successful when he was alone but had difficulty, unable to understand why, why others' teammates couldn't rise to his, his level of excellence. And so the first book, Walks with the Wind, is about his personal tra tragedy and challenges that take place in his life. And the second book, Catching the Wind, is where he gets an opportunity to come back, and his comeback is with my Kansas City Royals. And there's a lot of similarities between the 14 and 15 team and um, the team that uh, that you'll read about in Catching the Wind. And it's a love story slash historical fiction uh, or, or, or a love story slash baseball story as well. In addition to the 14 and 15 Kansas City Royals, I know that will hit home to you because that's, you know, Kansas City um, and also for Sam and I because that's where we live. I mean, you spent time with the Angels. You covered a lot of Golden State Warrior games back 
the 90s. Were there any other teams that you've covered or have watched just in the, in years past that resemble similar to not just the 14-15 Royals, but similar to the unity in the books that you've read? Sorry, that you've written? Well, when you take a look at some of the teams that I've covered, and I did the Pac-10 conference, Pac-12 now, for 25 years. So I was able to watch the Arizona Wildcats win a national championship in 97, Lou Dolson's team, and Jim Herrick's team in 1996 with UCLA, Pete Carroll's two USC teams, uh, the Angels, of course, in 2002. And when I was in uh, the San Francisco Bay Area, I covered the San Francisco 49ers and got a chance to know Bill Walsh very well and cover his teams and cover Joe Montana and Jerry Rice and Roger Craig and the success of those teams. But there was the same similarity, the uh, the love of each other, the uh, the ability to leave your ego in the locker room because everyone wants to be a star. And I'll give you an example. I was uh, talking to Randy Cross and the Super Bowl when Joe Montana led the 49ers 92 yards to beat the Cincinnati Bengals on that throw to John Taylor. I remember the next year I was visiting with Randy Cross, who was the center on that team. And Randy had made three mistakes in the Super Bowl, two holding calls, I believe, and maybe a, uh, a missed snap where he made a mistake and the other team recovered. I, I can't remember the, the specific. But Randy said the team was 92 yards away and there were 10 players on the field and they were all talking to each other while Bill Walsh was communicating with Joe Montana on the sideline during a television timeout. And Randy was going, come on, guys, we can do this. You know, and, and Jesse Sapola was saying the same thing. And so was Jerry Rice and they were all chattering away. Then the commercial ends and Joe comes jogging out and he doesn't say a word, but he looks us all in the eyes. And Randy goes, I, I look at his eyes and I go, oh my God, Joe's going to win the game for us. Joe's going to win the game for us. And I look at Jesse Sapola and he's got the same look. And I know, even though we're not communicating verbally, that he's thinking the same thing. And Jerry's thinking the same thing. And Roger Craig's thinking the same thing. And collectively, we thought, all I have to do is my job. Make the accurate snap to Joe. Get my block. And he goes, the execution on that drive was so perfect that we were all in this unity together. And I think Montana was 11 for 12 in pass attempts. And the only incomplete pass he threw, Bill Walsh told me this later, that I told Joe that if he felt uncomfortable about any throw, to throw it out of bounds. And Joe told me on a hardcore football show that he started hyperventilating going to the line of scrimmage. He was so excited about how the team was doing, and he just took the snap, threw it out of bounds, and started over. But they went right down the field and scored that touchdown. And I believe, and Randy believed, that the only way they did that was together to just do their job. And that is so true. It's like the 2002 Angels and the 2015 Royals, I believe, led the league in productive outs, which means you're giving yourself up to move a runner. To me, that is the epitome of teamwork. And I love to watch it. And, uh, you know, it's like when I watched the Arizona Wildcats under Lute Olson. The way they set screens, the way they 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 helped out 
teammates. They didn't have a great center, but they had three big men with 15 fouls to give. And so each big man did their best until they were removed from the game and another big man would come in and do his job for a while. So that's what I loved about covering team sports for 47 years. When you physically see young people let go of their ego and come together and play for each other, amazing things happen. Yeah, man, that's that's amazing that you're able to recollect that conversation. Um, and I'm really happy you're able to share that with us. I mean, both Sam and I were born in 1998. So, you know, that those Niner Super Bowl runs happened before we were born. So it's cool oh, to yeah. get get some of that imagery of what happened. Ronnie Lott, who was a safety on that 49ers team, and, I, and he's one of my favorite defensive players of all time, and Bill Moss, who was a Kansas City Chief, we hosted a show called Hardcore Football. And one time we had Bill Walsh on, um, along with Joe Montana, and they were talking about the play. And they were also talking about their struggles with each other because Joe came from a system at Notre Dame that gave him a lot of freedom. And when he came to the 49ers, it was more structured a West Coast offense. And Joe said, I hated Bill Walsh for my first year and a half. He was like putting blinders on me and, and, and taking away my creativity. And then Bill called him into his office and said, Joe, I'm taking the blinders off. And Montana had no idea what he was talking about. And he said, you're getting it now. You're understanding the West Coast, Coast offense. You're doing it naturally. And he said, but what's going to make you the great quarterback you are going to be is your spontaneity. When the play breaks down, what does Joe Montana do? And so Bill got, gets up on this chalkboard and puts down the play that beat the Dallas Cowboys. It's called the catch, Joe Montana to, to Dwight Clark. The play was actually supposed to go to the slot receiver, and I can't remember his name now, but he slipped and fell. And Joe was rolling out to his right. And, I mean, Bill Walsh was designing the, the play on this chalkboard as we're, we're talking, and Montana's off to the side. And when Bill Walsh said, the play broke down, and he said, most quarterbacks throw it here when they roll out. Great quarterbacks throw it here. Joe Montana threw it here. Dwight had still not separated, and Joe waited, 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 a guy right in his face, and then flipped it. Perfect pass. Only Dwight Clark could make the catch. And to me, that was an example of what Bill Walsh had been talking about. I'm taking off the blinders. Your spontaneity is what's going to make you magical and one of the great quarterbacks of all time. And Montana pulled off that play, executed it beautifully, and it was a trust that Walsh had in Montana. Montana had in the play, when the play broke down, the slot receiver was supposed to be the intended receiver. He fell down. And that where do you go when everything is a mess? And uh, that was just another example of, of how you win championships. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we might get into it uh, later on um, in this podcast, but obviously you can put some plays that has, have led to the Chiefs two Super Bowls recently in Kansas City. But when I was scheming up things to ask you, and I know it might be you might have a different opinion about this now because you're not as intently watching it, but the sport of baseball changed with some of the rules last year that you weren't a part of, like the pitch clock, 
the bigger bases, the limited defensive shift. None of that was apparent uh, in 2022. So, I mean, what's your, I guess, opinion on those rule changes of sport of baseball? I love them all. I've always said one of the most beautiful plays and ballet plays in baseball is a well-turned double play. I just love the execution. When you had guys out of position, all of a sudden it would look awkward. Throws were going wild. Guy would stumble over the bag. And now it's putting two guys on the right side, two guys on the left. So that's just a small thing. But I also like the bigger bases. That means you're going to have more infield hits, more stolen bases. And what costs a lot of money in sports, obviously, is starting pitching and power. And the Royals, or small market teams, really can't afford power and a superstar starting pitcher for a while. They can develop it, and uh, they can be creative, um, like they were in 14 and 15, where they had a very unselfish starting pitching staff. You know, the guys on that team in 14 and 15 really believed in their heart, all I have to do is go five innings. I don't have to go like nine, like Justin Verlander or Clayton Kershaw. Just go five and hand the baseball off to one of the best bull, well, the best bullpen in baseball. When you when you're going to give it to Luke Kochaber in the sixth inning and Kelvin Herrera in the seventh and Greg Holland in the eighth or, or or Wade Davis and then Greg Holland, whatever it was going to be, and so we had a starting pitching staff that truly believed in their heart. If I can just go five innings and hand the bullpen a tie game or a one run lead. It's over. And it was pretty much uh, that was the story. But like I said, buying relievers is less expensive than buying starting pitchers. And that's why you have to be creative. And that's why I like the rule changes. They, they needed to speed up the game. I, I was getting so tired of batters stepping out, spitting on their gloves, clapping their hands. You know, it's like you didn't do that in Little League. You don't, didn't do that in high school. You didn't do that in college. Get in the batter's box. Let's speed the game along, and let's call more more strikes, particularly at the knees. Because if you call strikes at the knees, because the rule book says the cup of the knee, if you call that a strike, all of a sudden you're going to have more guys swinging at pitches low in the strike zone. You're going to have more action. You're going to have more great plays by the infield, and you're going to see more. Like I said, the beautiful play that I love is a well-turned double play. But I thought it was very helpful for small market teams because the Royals can go out, draft speed, develop that speed. All of a sudden, you have more infield hits, more stolen bases, more opportunities to be creative to score runs. Yeah, Steve, uh, so let's go into like a little bit last time we were talking. You were you grew up watching a KU, K-State, Missouri, all supporting those teams. This year, I believe, is the first time all the local schools won a uh, college football bowl game. What is it like to see that uh, happen in, uh, for all the local schools in Kansas City? I, I was really excited to see all three of those teams win bowl games. And to see what's gone on at KU is pretty impressive because that coach has done a, a marvelous job. Obviously, K-State has been very solid ever since Bill Snyder took over. And when he did, he turned that whole program around and credit the uh, university for giving him the funds to, to help out. But to see K-State have success in football, to see KU have success in football, and now Mizzou have success in football too, I just wish it was back to the old Big 8 conference because that was a blast. 
And every Thanksgiving, I would watch Oklahoma and Nebraska. Um, obviously, I'm not a fan of the NCAA because I don't like what's happening. I don't like paying players. I want to see young athletes get an education rather than just jump around from school to school for, for a higher paycheck. Um, I think that's been rather tragic to see it take place. But I also understand my age, and I liked the old leagues. I liked it when Nebraska and Oklahoma played every Thanksgiving, and that was part of the Big 8 Conference. I liked it when Colorado was part of the Big 8. Apparently, they're coming back into the, the Big 12 Conference. But you have, I mean, when UCLA and USC are going to the Big 10 Conference, and I think, what is it, Stanford and Cal are going to the uh, Big ACC. East? or ACC. Yeah. Wait a second. That's the West Coast. And they had a great league. Obviously, it was completely messed up by the conference, why they don't have uh, the Pac-12 anymore, because they had every single major market in the West. They had Seattle. They had Portland. They had San Francisco. They had L.A. They had Phoenix. They had Denver. They had Salt Lake City. They had a great conference. They messed up with a very poor television contract where they couldn't get on in places. Uh, yes, the universities made money for a while, but as soon as they couldn't make a deal, all of those schools started running away. And when UCLA and USC ran off to the Big Ten, you knew that was the end of the Pac-12 conference. So I, I'm, I'm a little disappointed with the NCAA. I think they're a basically a money-making operation. And I think there's a reason why young people go to school. And, and first and foremost, I think it should be to get an education. But if you take a look at the graduation rates of some of the uh, conferences, it's not very good. And uh, that, that, that should be your number one goal. And obviously it isn't. It's about money. For sure, absolutely. Um, what are your thoughts so far on uh, Jerome Tame's time at K-State and uh, how excited are you to have a coach like that and have the success as he's had so far in these uh, first two years? I think he's fantastic. I mean, I watched the Baylor game the other night, and Baylor's one of the top teams in the country. But Kansas State's execution, and a lot of times what I notice is, what does a team do after a timeout? And... uh Jerome does just a, a great job identifying what they need to do. And their help defense is excellent. Their ball movement is excellent. They know uh, as soon as they get a rebound, where to get the ball into the hands of their point guard, Perry, and how to get the ball up the floor. But I think they made a, a great choice in choosing him. And he had been, you know, at Baylor for forever. And he and Scott Drew are very, very good friends. But to see Kansas State beat a, an excellent Baylor team was impressive. And I, I continue to be impressed with uh, with all the coaches at Kansas State. Yeah, uh, currently right now, Jerome Tang is 3-0 against uh, Scott Drew in his uh, first two years at uh, Kansas State. He has not lost to Scott Drew yet. <laughs> That's hard to believe, too, because Scott's a very good coach, and Baylor always has a terrific team. Yeah, Absolutely. Uh, one of the biggest topics in, uh, with the Royals is the new stadium talks. Uh, there has been a lot of mixed emotions from the uh, public. A lot of people really love Kauffman Stadium, including myself. But there's a, there are some people, a lot of people, too, want to see a downtown ballpark. And you mentioned in the previous uh, episode when uh, you were on uh, that you were 
you wanted you would love to see a downtown ballparking talked about Camden Yards and like uh what it could do for a community um what are your thoughts on like how that's uh progressing in Kansas City and uh what where would you want the new stadium located you know, I'm I know probably as much as you do. Now that I'm retired, I'm not involved in that, but I just think it would be a great idea to have a downtown ballpark because I see the success that they've had in San Francisco. That was a very depressed area. And if you go to uh the Giants ballpark now, the whole surrounding area is marvelous with new hotels and restaurants. It's very vibrant. The same thing is true at Denver. Coors Field was in an area that was very depressed. Same thing is true in Detroit uh, with Comerica. I mean, obviously, Wrigley Field is downtown, and it's almost like a fraternity atmosphere. And I just think if you can build that community, there's a, a part of Kansas City that needs to, to be fixed up. And w- where they were talking, I think, would have been perfect because it's not far from the crossroads not far from the Power and Light District, where you can actually go have dinner, come to the ballpark, watch the game. And I know they talk about parking, all all of these other things. But around Arrowhead, or GEHA, and also at Kauffman Stadium, there's there's nothing else there. I mean, and, and, and you'd really like to have some kind of vibrant community, restaurants and bars and where young people can go and then just walk over to the to the to the stadium, you know. Obviously, growing up in Kansas, I went to Old Municipal Stadium, and then I fell in love with Royal Stadium, which later became Kauffman Stadium. I thought they did a great job when they redid the ballpark. I think 2011 might have been a year oh, or nine. two. Oh nine, before yeah, a few years before I got there, and uh, I just think it revitalizes the entire community and and it can be done for sure so uh last mlb season the uh, texas rangers won their first world series ever with a familiar face with gm and chris young and then another familiar face with uh dayton moore uh being part of their uh front office um what are your thoughts on those two uh winning the uh, world series last year well dayton moore is one of my favorite people of all time and as a matter of fact, um, the general manager in my book, Catching the Wind, if you read it, you'll notice some similarities between Dayton and the GM called David Wilson. But Dayton is a man of integrity. Uh, he, has a, he has a great track record. He has an incredible ability to see talent because he was once a scout. He believes in scouts. Um, I knew that he had a great relationship with Chris Young when Chris was a Kansas City Royal as a pitcher. And I have a, a great deal of respect for, for Chris. I had a chance to visit with him on the airplane and get to know his family a little bit. So I was very, very happy. But that was the first thing I did when Texas won a world championship. Uh, I, I texted Dayton and say, congratulations. I'm so happy for you. He's a man of integrity. He's a man of of tremendous leadership because he always wanted to not only build baseball players, but to build future leaders. And I always gave him credit. I'm part of his See You in the Major Leagues program, which is still um, alive and thriving in Kansas City. And uh, Dayton has continued to work with that, trying to uh, help out young people in Kansas City. I'm sure he's doing the same in Texas. But I was thrilled for not only those two guys, but also my dear friend, Eric Nadell 
who's a longtime broadcaster for the Rangers, and to see him be part of a world championship was really, really cool. So I want to go back to your last year a little bit before, right, right when you retired, um, which uh, was Dayton Morris last year in Kansas City. What happened there, and what caused the uh, downfall in KC that caused him to um, be uh, be removed as the uh, general manager of our Royals? Well, believe me, I have been involved in that situation in the past when a new management team takes over, and the same thing happened to me and Rex Hudler when we were with the. Uh, Angels, we had been through three different ownership teams. We had been through the Autry family, the Disney organization, and then later with Artie Moreno. And we, we lasted together. I lasted for 14 years and Rex lasted 11. So anytime there is a leadership change, a lot of times they want their own people. And so you can always, every time I have been let go by an organization, it was usually change in management. They wanted their own people. I understand that. Uh, in my case, it was like, you never know the good that comes from what is perceived as bad. Like when I lost the Angels job, I actually, in my opinion, I got a better job with the team I loved growing up, the Kansas City Royals. And then to see them win a world championship was absolutely incredible. So, so those are the things. But to point to one thing for Dayton Moore is, is very unfair to say this is what what cost him the job. I think he was as surprised as anybody, but I do think Major League Baseball, unlike the NFL, NBA, or NHL, they have a very unfair system. And I thought the last collective bargaining agreement where, where we had the, uh, the strike, you know, a little, a little bit of that in, in 2022 when we missed some of the uh, spring training games, that really should have been about helping out the small market teams. Because in, in like the NFL, if they had a system like Major League Baseball, Patrick Mahomes is not with the Kansas City Chiefs. But it's a system uh, that is even, where there's a balance with the players and the owners. In Major League Baseball, it's completely swung towards the rich. And in this case, I mean, do you think that the Royals had a chance to get Shohei Otani or the Milwaukee Absolutely Bulls? not. No yeah, or, or, or the Cleveland Indians? No way. It's impossible. That's in in the system that's in the NFL or NHL or NBA. Yeah, they would have a chance to get Shohei Otani. But as an example, the Dodgers, remember they made, they made a very poor decision getting Trevor Bauer a few years ago. And I knew that Trevor had some challenges in his life and that this was a bad move, a three-year, $130 million deal. But what the Dodgers are able to do is they're able to pay for their mistakes. The Yankees, the Dodgers, the Red Sox. So when they, when when Bauer was suspended, what did they do? They went out and they got Max Scherzer. So the small market teams can't do that. They have to be absolutely perfect. And that's why what I thought Dayton Moore and his staff did in 14 and 15 is remarkable. But it started you know, when, when they drafted Alex Gordon and then they were able to draft Mike Moustakis and Eric Hosmer, they were lucky to, to make a, a tremendous signing in, in Salvador Perez. But he had an idea and uh, obviously building the team with an incredible bullpen and then also making sure that they had a system in place 
that could develop into a championship quality team. And then I remember in 2015, it was July, and I saw Dayton in the uh, dugout, and I said, hey, Dayton, you know, we're really good. We're going to win the Central. But I don't know if we have enough uh, ammunition to win a, a, a championship. And he knew what I was talking about, and he said, and Steve, I have two weeks to get them but I'm not going to do anything that's going to interrupt the great chemistry that we currently have in that clubhouse. And within a week, they signed or they traded for Ben Zobrist. And Ben Zobrist fit that team perfectly, a man without any ego who's all about the team. And then we also needed a superior starting pitcher. And we got Johnny Cueto. And even though some people go, well, you look at Johnny's numbers, they weren't that good. Johnny Cueto pitched in some of the biggest games and really gave us a tremendous lift. People don't understand the importance of a complete game. Uh, you might remember after the Royals came back from four runs down to beat the uh, Houston Astros in game four, was it? And, and, and remember, their bullpen was gassed. And Johnny throws a complete game. All, all of a sudden, you know, that was... Tremendous. And the other point, when the Royals won game one of the World Series and had to go 14 innings, and I think Chris Young threw like three or four innings of that. So all of a sudden, your bullpen was spent. Game two, who pitched? Johnny Cueto. And he threw a complete game. So those were two huge moments that rested the entire bullpen so we could go on and uh, compete the rest of the way with a fresh bullpen. So there are little moments like that. And I still go back to Dayton Moore and his decision-making that was incredible to get Zobrist, who fit perfectly into that lineup, and Johnny Cueto, who uh, was a tremendous addition as a, as a number one starting pitcher. When you were mentioning Johnny Cueto, it, made me, it kind of reminded me, because I'm a, as a KU basketball fan, of Remy Martin, who when he, during the regular season, his numbers weren't very good. He was injured. It didn't seem to like work out for him. But then once the postseason came, he was the guy who was hitting all the big shots, had those big numbers. And then if uh, Johnny Cueto was on the Roy Royals, they don't win a World Series. If Remy Martin wasn't on KU, they wouldn't have won the national title that year. Just think about guys who just maybe not a, when they came out first, they didn't really look as good. But then at the end, they were the ones that were ho hoisting up the trophy at the end. It takes everyone. And, you know, uh, one of my favorite moments, and I may have shared this on the last show, was uh, an Alex Gordon moment. And, and I'm a big Alex Gordon fan. Is, uh, he, he's just a, a great leader, a great husband, a great father, a great teammate. And that 14 team, after they beat the Oakland A's in the wild card game, they be truly believed in their hearts that they could beat anyone. And they just blitz through the Angels, and then blitz through the Baltimore Orioles. And I believe it was the last game. They swept the Orioles in four straight. And Jason Vargas was on the mound pitching and gave up a long drive to J.J. Hardy. And I was doing the game for TBS. Um, they had their regular broadcasters in the booth, and they hired Mike Bordick, the former shortstop, to be next to the Baltimore Orioles dugout. And I was selected by TBS to be next to our dugout to give on-field reports because the networks obviously take it away from the local TV. And so I was next to our dugout. And when Gordon made the catch of the J.J. Hardy drive and slammed into the fence, 
and fell back and then held the ball aloft. The place was going crazy at Kauffman Stadium. And because I'm right next to the dugout, I see Alex run in and the entire team mobs him. And they're just pounding him on the back. And Jason Vargas was outside that big mob with his arms folded, waiting for Alex to get off so he could congratulate him and thank him for making a great catch and, and saving some runs. And as soon as Alex stood up, Jason gave him a big hug, and Alex took three steps and turned around and looked directly at Jason, which is directly at me. And Alex said to Jason, I got your back. And that was the team that year. They had everybody's back. Like I said earlier, Kane had Gordon's back. Gordon had Moustakis's back. They, that team just loved each other. W when you have that kind of unity, like I said, magic happens. And uh, magic happened for the Royals in 14 and 15. I mean, it's a, it's a different regime now. And it's a different set of players. I mean, what, what, like, what would it take for guys like Bobby Witt or, I mean, I know some. I mean, Salvador Perez is in a sort of a different phase of his career, but you know, MJ Melendez, those type of guys, Mikel Garcia. Like, what would it? What will it take for those guys to have a similar rise and bring the Royals just back to being a competitive uh, team? Three things. Pitching, pitching, pitching. That's what they need. That's, I mean, you look at their numbers from last year. Um, Bobby Witt Jr. is going to be one of the great players in the game. And one of the cool things about Bobby, um, getting to know him, he's all about the team. He was raised really well. His dad and mom did a great job. Even his sisters, who spoiled him a little bit, he's admitted that, did a great job. But he really is focused on team, what he can do to help the team's success. Now, does he know that he has incredible skills? I mean, his hand-eye coordination is remarkable. His speed, his, his, the, the ball just jumps off his bat. So he has a ch chance to be a superstar. But the Royals and uh, J.J. did a great job in the offseason identifying their problem, and they went out and got some relievers. They went out and got some starting pitching. Obviously, those guys have to stay healthy. Like I said, small market teams have to be very, very creative because they can't pay for their mistakes. And by mistakes, I'm talking about they can't pay for an injury. The Dodgers can pay for injuries. The Yankees can pay for injuries. The Red Sox, the big market teams that get the big money from local TV revenue and don't have to share it, they can pay for the mistakes. But teams like the Royals and the Brewers and you know the Cleveland uh, Guardians, they can't do that. Or the Tampa Bay Rays, who have been very creative to, to, to maintain their level of success. Who would be on your Mount Rushmore of Kansas City athletes? Oh, well, obviously, George, you start with, I mean, if you're talking just Royals um, or you're talking all Kansas City. Uh, all Kansas City. Well, but then, then you, got, you, you got to go with Lenny Dawson. He's one of the great quarterbacks. Obviously, Patrick Mahomes now, who's been fantastic. You know, I have an allegiance to the team that won the first championship, and I can name names on that team. So they're very personal to me. Like Willie Lanier was like, in my opinion, the best middle linebacker of that era. And But I'm a little bit jaded. And Bobby Bell was one of my favorites. Mike Garrett, I got to know when he was the athletic director at USC. And then later when he came back to, to Kansas City, we've had dinner together. And I just think the world of him. 
Um, Otis Taylor was my favorite player. As a matter of fact, when I was 13 years old, I believe, I, I drove down to Mission State Bank on Shawnee Mission Boulevard, and Otis Taylor was there to sign autographs. And I still have the uh, picture to this day. And I got in line, and I got an autograph signed from Otis Taylor. And then I got back in line because I wanted another autograph. And as soon as I saw him, he looked at me and he goes, you've already been through this line before, haven't you? And I said, yes, but you're my favorite player. And he goes, what's your name? And I said, Steve. And uh, he wrote down, to Steve, my pal, from Otis Taylor. So, you know, I have those guys on my Mount Rushmore. But obviously, George Brett is up there. Um, Dennis Leonard, I think, was a tremendous pitcher, not nearly as respected I mean, you look at his numbers, they were fantastic. Um, obviously, Alex Gordon is on that, Salvador Perez. Um, I wish Eric Hosmer had stayed with us. He would have been on that Mount Rushmore list. But uh, some of those early Kansas City Chiefs, you know, captured my heart because that, that was one of my first teams I fell in love with. Yeah, it's a, it's very tough. i it's uh, there's so many uh, great athletes here in Kansas City. Obviously, Mahomes. We're in the Mahomes era now, and I see George. You know, and, and I forgot. I mean, Jeff Montgomery is one of my favorite people. Yeah. You know, obviously Monty came along at a time when the Royals weren't very good, but his numbers were outstanding. But Dan Quisenberry was fantastic. Uh, you know, obviously Brett Saberhag and David Cohen in their short time with us. That's why I like to see teams that are able to hold on to their players for a longer period of time. All right. So uh, we're going to do the first thing we've ever done on this show. We're going to do a uh, maculant grid. Since I've been retired, as I said, I've been more involved with mother nature and writing books <laughs> than I have with uh, following sports. But the good thing is it's from any era. You don't, it doesn't have to be today. So it can be from any uh, time period. So let's start with this. We'll start. Let's start. Let's warm up with some Royals. All right. Second plate, second base for the Royals. It can be anybody. Just one game. You like Frank White? Yeah. Okay. I'll go with Frank. Right field for the Royals. You know what? I'm going to go old school. I'm going to go with Al Cowens. And then uh, who pitched uh, one, one game for the Royals? Oh, I, I want one pitcher? Yeah, you, you can choose any Royals pitcher who pitched at least one game for them. I'm going to go with Brett Saberhagen. Uh, for the Arizona Diamondbacks, a second baseman. Ooh, I'm not really much on the Arizona Diamondbacks there in the National League. I'm trying to think of the second baseman they had on their world championship team in 2001. And uh, I just can't remember. The Tony Womack was. I mean, now I'm trying to think of like who who would be their guy recently, and and I I can't come up with a name. Why why did you choose the Arizona Diamondbacks of all teams? This was this was just the grid that made it. I had to choose one with the Royals. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's go with Tony Womack then. Here we go. All right, right fielder for the uh, Diamondbacks. Oh gosh. Um, right field for the. Arizona Diamondbacks. Gosh, lately it's been. You know what? Uh, I'm guessing was Luis Gonzalez 
on that team? In the Diamondbacks? Yeah. I don't know if he was a right fielder. It was not. Okay. So we're going to move on now to a pitcher for the Diamondbacks. You know, the pitcher for the Diamondbacks. I'm going to go with Randy Johnson. It's the big unit. And I still love the story of Rex Hudler and Randy Johnson about a. Oh, yeah. I've heard it a thousand times. Disney World. <laughs> Steve has to know about the Twins. I mean, he covered. Right. The, they played the Royals so many times. Second baseman for the Twins. Second baseman for the Twins? You know, back in the day, it was Frank Quillis. but I, I don't want to go with that name. Gosh, who was it recently? Yeah. Twins second baseman. And that and that great 65 team with Zoyo Versailles. And I'm going to go with Rod Carew. There you go. Right fielder for the uh, Twins. One of my favorite players of all time. I wore his number in Little League, number six, Tony Oliva. All right. Well, wait, we got one more guest left. Uh, a pitcher for the Minnesota Twins. I'd like to go with Mudcat Grant. He was the star on the 65 team. But uh, I'm going to go with Burt Blylevin because he's a, he's a dear friend of mine, and he was part of their championship team, I believe, in 1991. 91. All right. There we go. Eight out of nine, pretty good, I would say. It shows you a right does – it, doesn't it show you the right fielder, right, for Arizona? Yeah. So Steve so. could have guessed Corbin Carroll – all right, we could. I can pull up a list. Yeah, it, it just seems like everybody goes with the the guys who are now. Yeah, and I'm going with old timers. I, I, that's a better way to go at this game. You can actually get a rarer score if you go so with Justin, like older players. So Steve could have Steve. You could have had. You could have guessed Justin Upton, AJ Pollock, David Peralta, and I'm trying to. But uh, who was the guy on the? Uh, on the 2001 team, obviously it was, wasn't Gonzalez. He must have been the uh, left fielder, I guess. Could have guessed two Royals, actually. Willie Bloomquist and Gerard Dyson. Wow. How about that? Well, I didn't fare that well, did I? I mean, you got eight out of nine. I mean, you got you, you got the – I mean, you yeah. got eight out of nine, and you picked the ones that uh, were some recent, some that – you know, you re you remembered when you were younger, so that's fine. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, with the Twins, I could have gone with Jim Cott, but I thought ah, it's too much of an old timer. Although Jim Cott was one of the great pitchers, or Jim Perry, um, could have gone with uh, the changeup artist uh, who was part of their championship team in '91, Frank Viola. But uh, I went with Bert only because he's my he's a friend and he's he's hilarious. He's the only broadcaster who has ever mooned me during the broadcast. <laughs> how, did, how did that happen? In the old Metrodome, you had the twins right next to the Royals television broadcast. And I was doing the game with the Angels with Rex Hudler. And Rex and, and Bert like, are, are pretty crazy anyway. And there's a plate of glass. Well, Bert and... Uh, Rex were going at each other just in between commercial breaks, just having fun with each other. And right when we're on the air, Bert drops his pants and puts his 
hind end up against the window and we're cracking up laughing. Of course, we're not going to tell others why we're laughing, but that was the reason why Bert Blylevin's behind. He's one of those guys that I really respected because I am a big believer in don't take yourself seriously. Take your job seriously, but not yourself. And Bert Blylevin and Rex Hudler epitomize that definition. Absolutely. So uh, as we uh, close the show today, uh, where where can uh, people uh, get your books at? You know, you can just go to stevephysioc.com. That's my website. Or you can go to Amazon, type in my name, P-H-Y-S-I-O-C, and the books will come up there. Like I said, there's two that are historical f- fiction, two that are kind of baseball action adventure, um, family sagas that uh, people like and Obviously, Writer's Digest liked a lot because it was their grand prize winner for self-published books in 2021. And then the uh, the sequel did equally as well in, in 2022. So I'm having fun with that story and having fun writing my fifth novel, which should be out probably next year. Awesome. So any listeners out there, uh, check out the book and uh, continue to support Steve and uh in the best way you can by getting his books. Thank you very much. And I think you'll enjoy them. Yeah. Steve, we, we appreciate you coming on um, for a second time. I, I did not think I would uh, learn about the bird Blylevin mooning story. Uh, <laughs> I'm glad that that was provided. Uh, but just your, your sharp memory when it came, when it comes to, you know, covering past teams, obviously the Royals, but you know, your detailed outlook about the 49ers and their um, championship run was really, really cool to listen to. And that's why we brought you on was just to provide some glimpses of that. And also next chapter of your life as a, in retirement. Yeah. When you've done something for 47 years, you have some great memories and, uh, like I said, I think one of the things that motivated me to get into the business was my love of seeing teams to come together and have success. And uh, when you see a team win and go to a bowl game, that's special. When you see a team like the Chiefs or the Royals win a championship, that's very, very special and, and, and holds on to your memory. Like I told you, I can tell you the entire starting lineup of the 1969 Kansas City Chiefs that won the Super Bowl over the Minnesota Vikings to this day. And it's only because I was so invested on as a little kid in that time. And uh, I just love those teams. And, and, and that's what's great about having a, having a career in this business. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Thank you so much, Steve. Thank All you, right. Steve. Have a wonderful day. And thanks for inviting me on.